You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. We made it. Draft night, 2018. It is upon us. Brian Seltzer, welcoming you back into our final draft preview edition of the podcast. Our guest from the step in is going to be a busy man on the podcast circuit as of late, but someone who's been following the draft leading up to tonight's nonstop. Cole Zwicker, that conversation coming up in just a moment. Reminder that to subscribe to the podcast, all you got to do is head to a couple places, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Type in Sixers Podcast Network. That will take you to our feed. Please do become a subscriber. I got to admit it, on the heels of the 76ers second-round playoff loss to the Boston Celtics, about a little bit more than a month ago now, um, I was having a tough time really sinking my teeth and brain into this year's draft. The last couple seasons, there was so much buildup for the Sixers, so much excitement given where they were picking. Um, and then this year, it was a season of an entirely different context with the team erupting for 52 wins and going on this great postseason run um, that when it was done, I was just like, you know, the draft, I'm still all about this whole playoff thing. And uh, yeah, I had a hard time really diving into the draft. But after lottery night, 76ers end up with a 10th pick. Um, they would also have 26, their own pick in the first round, four in the second round at 38, 39, 56, and 60. Started to get the juices flowing a little bit more. Then there were these prospect workouts in Camden at the Sixers training complex the last two weeks. And uh, at this point by now on draft day itself, the enthusiasm is back totally in and this is great it's awesome it's exciting the 76ers this is the first opportunity in a huge offseason for the team to add to its talent base and you'd think that based upon the reporting that's out there the way mock drafts have looked the Sixers will definitely have an opportunity to um, deepen their talent pool in an area where they could use some help there are a lot of good wing prospects out there, um, and as we've heard from a handful of the guests that we've had on the podcast over the last two weeks, the thinking is while this is 
a draft that towards the top might be full of uncertainty as far as who goes where. It's also a draft that has good talent in it, and the Sixers definitely in position to acquire some of it. To help us sort through some of the final rumblings, rumors, smoke screens, things like that, is Cole Zwicker from the Stepian. Cole, thanks so much for taking time to do this with the draft just on our doorstep. Why don't we start with this? What do you consider to be the most compelling storyline the day of the draft? Yeah, I think right now is what the hell happens at number two overall. I can't remember this much uncertainty as far as what the Kings are doing. We seem to have a pretty good read on Phoenix going eight and number one, even though that's not incredibly set in stone yet. But I can't remember this much uncertainty at the top of the draft. Last year, we had a pretty good idea who was going one, two, three, like three days before the draft. And now this year, the Kings could go Marvin Bagley. They could go Michael Porter at that spot, potentially Luka Doncic. And that just shapes the rest of the draft. If you had to make your best guess, what do you think they do? I think they go Marvin Bagley. I think I'm buying the reports on them valuing the fact that he wants to be in Sacramento. Bagley wants to go as high as possible in the draft. He actually worked out for them. Uh, One of the only elite level prospects to do that. So I think that I'm buying stock in that. And I always thought Bagley was going to be a top three pick based on athletic pedigree and how those kinds of players are viewed by NBA executives. So I'm going to go Marvin Bagley at two. How much are you reading into the report about the Atlanta Hawks interest in Luka? I think it's legitimate. I I think that they're going to look at his situation and be like, when are we going to have a chance to get a player of his caliber? A lot of people have him as the best player in the class, myself included. So number three overall, that makes a ton of sense. I never expected him to be there. Just from an other vantage point, though, it just makes sense for them to build up hype just in case a team like Dallas wants to move up a couple picks, move ahead of the Grizzlies, and maybe they're just increasing their trade value there as an ancillary part. But I do think the interest is very real. If you had to envision a scenario where he doesn't go to Atlanta, do you have any idea of how far he might drop? What's the farthest he could slide down? I think his absolute floor is five to Dallas. I can't imagine them passing on him with their international scouting staff. They're going to be really well-versed with all the intricacies, all the details of his personal life. They're going to be really comfortable with him, I think, overall at five. So I can't see him getting past Dallas at five. If he were to make it past two or even three, what type of action on the phones do you then think would pick up? (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be pretty considerable. I think you could see a team like Philadelphia try to move up for him. Uh, It's going to be really fascinating. Cleveland might try to package up if they think LeBron's leaving. I'm not sure if a lot of these teams have the requisite assets to get to number four, for example. But we've heard the Clippers are another team with Jerry West having – the 12 and 13 picks, they have Tobias Harris. Maybe they can make a move with the Grizzlies at four. Uh, apparently, they don't, don't want to take back Chandler Parsons' contract because, of course, nobody really wants to do that. But if you have the chance to draft Luka Doncic, maybe that shifts their, their calculus there. Are we talking multiple players, pick? What type of assets do you think a, a team would demand um, to give up a spot that would put another team in position to get Luka Doncic? Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, I think a team like Memphis, for example, would want an established veteran to help them win now in conjunction with another draft pick. I can't see them just trading for and Chandler Parsons for a young player. I think they're going to want another pick, an established veteran. So it really varies. I mean, I don't see a lot of, of interest. I don't see a lot of mutual agreements. Like, I don't think 12 and 13 plus Tobias Harris gets you four without taking back Chandler Parsons, for example. So it's going to be a bevy of assets. I think the, the upper part of this draft is viewed in high regard. This is a very deep draft at the top. And a, a guy like Jaron Jackson, for example, at four or five, that guy's going to have a ton of value. So it's going to have to be some really legitimate deals. And you just rarely find the meeting of the minds there. Like Kawhi Leonard, the Spurs could, I guess, in theory, trade him 
you know, to, to Memphis, for example, I just feel like it, it's going to be hard to work out a deal that makes sense for both sides, considering how highly valued these picks are. It's crazy, though, that because of the depth of talent that is still in the top of the draft, that we keep talking about things like uncertainty and unpredictability and using buzzwords like that surrounding this year's draft. And you had a really interesting tweet that you put out um, recently about the skill, IQ, instincts element versus the athleticism and tools component type prospects. Can you get into a little bit of that and what you're seeing there? Yeah, it's just a really fascinating draft. I don't remember the dichotomy being this established as far as having elite-level players on both sides of the spectrum. Luka Doncic, Trey Young being both hyper-skilled, like generationally skilled players with basketball intelligence, offensive-minded guys on that end, and just a lot of athleticism question marks. They don't have, like Trey doesn't have the positional size. He's on the smaller end. He's not super dynamic as an athlete. Luka, of course, has athletic limitations with first step, his general build. So you just have elite-level outliers as far as skill. And then in conjunction with a guy like Jaron Jackson, who just has off-the-charts defensive instincts as far as team defense, help defense, awareness, all of that. And you compare that to guys like DeAndre Ayton, who has generational physical tools in terms of size, speed, length, movement skills. Marvin Bagley the same way. Generational kind of second jumper um, on an offensive glass can run the floor. Better, one of the best rim runners we've ever seen coming into the draft in like the Amari Stoudemire mold, but even more agile than that. So you just have guys on completely different ends of the spectrum. Mo Bamba, of course, fitting that latter category with his 7'10 wingspan. We've never seen a guy with this high of a margin for error as him. So it's just really extreme cases on both sides of the fence, and it's really interesting to see how it's going to play out. Do you feel like a team would be compromising itself if it prioritized one category versus the other when it comes to guys like the ones that you just mentioned? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating because it, so much is based on player development systems. Do they go to the right team fit or they develop the right way? Can Mo Bamba add the requisite girth and add a little bit more pop so he can you know survive better in space defensively at the highest levels of play? It, it's tough because... This is such a philosophical debate. I usually gear towards safety being the guys with high intellect and high skill level. I just think that those guys are hard to fail. But at the same time, like DeAndre Ayton and Marvin Bagley, if your measuring stick is production, like I think both those guys could be 20 and 10 guys. So if you project it to how does this all translate to winning basketball – I'm always going to choose the IQ and skill guys. I just think the most, the best players in the league are usually the most skilled and the smartest ones. But it's hard to to really make very vehemently opposing arguments to a guy like DeAndre Ayton or Marvin Bagley being productive NBA players. I think they could be multi-year all-stars. It kind of just comes down to putting everything in the framework of what contributes to winning basketball and what does not. I don't know why this is an example that comes to mind. Maybe it's just because I'm so close to it, but you think of someone like Dario Saric, and again, that's an example because it's close to home a few years back. He, <laughs> he went towards the latter part of the lottery. And Is he a freak athlete? Does he have any supreme skill um, that is generational? Maybe you wouldn't quite say that, but um, his smarts, the way he shows up at key moments of games, um, that to me at least is something that stood out the last two years when you look in hindsight at how that pick or a pick like that paid off for a team like the 76ers. Absolutely. I think Dario has the positional size, the skill level, that is hard to find. I mean, you don't find a lot of 6'10 guys who can dribble, pass, and shoot like he can make plays. And despite his lack of athleticism, I think he has enough skill game and enough IQ to compensate. So I think that's largely been, honestly, historically, an inefficiency in the draft is guys not valuing maybe the skill level and having upside associated with that. We see a lot of Luka as a high-floor, lower-ceiling prospect because 
because of his athleticism. I don't really ascribe to that theory. I think that he he's generationally skilled as far as you know dribble pass shoot ability. Uh, his IQ is off the charts. Guys like that improve at rates that we don't really expect. And you know the whole athleticism equals upside debate that a lot of people seem to have. I don't really ascribe to that. I mean there are cases where that does happen athleticism always helps you but at the same time i, I think that devalues just how valuable the elite skill and iq guys are you mentioned trey young a little bit earlier do you really think he could slip as far as now some people i saw something today that he could potentially fall to 10 do you see that happening i guess it's possible i mean we heard the draft express guys the espn guys now they had a mock 12 too i mean he seems to be slipping on guys boards because I mean, he doesn't have the physical tools. And that's another example of a guy who the NBA traditionally undervalues, like a Steve Nash type of player in the past, Stephen Curry even falling to seven. Like these freak skill guys, I, I think they get devalued because the, I think they're viewed as less safe prospects. When a guy like Trey Young, I agree that maybe the downside is there. He's always going to be able to, to shoot and always going to be able to pass and, ball, and, and dribble the ball at a high level. He's going to make plays, but he can take a lot off the table defensively um, with his lack of size, especially in the playoffs when guys hunt him. But I think the upside is just phenomenal as far as his offensive upside being elite amongst this class, just due to the value of being a primary ball handler and creating at a high level. I just I don't understand guys with those kinds of ceilings falling too far. Like if he goes 12, it's impossible to make an argument that there are 11 guys that have higher ceiling outcomes than him in the draft. About what he does well, um, what do you think gets lost with all the focus that people who might not cover the prospect scene as closely as someone like yourself does? What are some of the things that might get lost with all the attention that's paid to his shooting ability? Yeah, I think he's kind of pigeonholed into this volume scorer now because of his role at Oklahoma. We saw like the 37% usage, which is historically high. I think it's actually the highest we've ever seen from a freshman guard. And all of his efficiency numbers don't really jump off the page as far as 36% from three is kind of underwhelming. But contextualizing that, all of his shots were hard. They're all self-created, a lot of them off the dribble. A lot of them contested off the dribble from even beyond NBA range. So he's kind of pigeonholed as this maybe lower IQ guy because he's a volume scorer type when he just didn't have the supporting infrastructure there. Like he only had 19 unguarded catch-and-shoot attempts in the half court from three, and he hit 14 of them. So he's basically a knockdown shooter when he has time and space at all. And but that just exemplifies the fact that he was never playing off the ball. He was never given open looks. Nobody else could create offense for him. So I think that's a lot of the nuance that you miss. He's, he's viewed as more of like a shot-happy guy. His passing instincts are elite. His functionality there is elite. He can make a cross-court skip pass with his left hand. There aren't five players in the NBA that can make that pass with their offhand as far as at high velocity. So there's a lot of nuance to his game that's missed, a lot of the anticipatory passing, just because, again, we like to kind of categorize these guys in easy-to-identify ways. So volume score, you know, he's kind of a gimmick, like a, a Jimmer Fredette in the past, even though he's not even close to Jimmer Fredette. He's way better prospect as far as so many angles. The, the, the fluidity and the, the quickness he does, transitioning from his handle to his jump shot, all the passing stuff, the ball handling shiftiness, the horizontal explosion, all of that is better than Jimmer. So I just think that that's kind of a lazy argument by a lot of the mainstream media that just wants to categorize this guy, build him up like they did earlier in the year. Oh, he's the next Stephen Curry. And then once he starts struggling a little bit, it's like, oh, he might be the next Jimmer for that. That's just kind of like the natural curve, I guess, of how people analyze these guys. I feel like I might have a sense of how you'd answer this next question, but fit with the 76ers, what do you think? I love it. It's my favorite in the draft for him just because they really do have the defensive insulation there with Embiid, with Covington, with Simmons. They have the size to really 
support him on that end. Uh, and, and his shooting, I think he can be an absolute lethal shooter with those guys because he's going to be a gravity threat off the ball. It's not like this guy needs the ball to be successful. That's what I like about him so much is you don't he doesn't have to have he's not an athletic younger guard like a Dennis Smith, a De'Aaron Fox where he has to initiate your sets all the time. You can play him off the ball as well, and his shooting gravity is going to be incredible, especially on a team like the Sixers. And you have someone like Ben Simmons who presumably can do just fine handling the pill, and that seems like you make that much more sense should Trey Young be there at 10. Um, so as we get into the 76ers a little bit more, of the teams that have the opportunity to influence the way draft night goes the most, where would you put the Sixers with six picks in the draft? Yeah, that's really curious. I mean, at the, at the 10 spot, you're usually impacting the draft at the top as far as the trickle-down effect, unless the Sixers want to move up and they're viewed as maybe they can move up a few spots because they have all these picks. Maybe a team covets that, you know, it's seven or six or whatnot. So I think at 10, you're looking at just taking the best player available on the board. I actually have 10 players in my first or my top uh, two tiers or three tiers. So for me, they would just take the best guy available. That's likely going to be one of the bridges but they do have the, the firepower to move up in the draft. They have assets on their roster, the guy like Sarge, Fultz, in theory, if they really wanted to get crazy, move into like the top four or something. They do have the capital to do that. So I, they're not like driving for me. They're not driving the draft at all right now, just based on the intel we've heard. But they definitely have the they're in position and they have the pieces to make some uh, make some effect in the draft. Uh, something that they said, um, particularly Elton Brand, who was talking about this, he's the G League general manager in Delaware earlier this week, was one of the philosophical debates taking place increasingly so as of late is just it's getting down to this notion of whether the 76ers should prioritize potential versus fit. What do you think would be best for the team at this current state as it's constituted? Yeah, I mean, ideally you're going to get both. You're going to get fit and potential. I think a guy like Miles Bridges, in Philadelphia's system makes a ton of sense. So there's McHale in many respects, but Miles gives you a little bit more offensive push as far as secondary ball handling, the ability to attack closeouts. Both those guys can shoot off movement at a high level, and that's pretty crucial for Philadelphia's system because they rely so much on those off-ball gravity shooters, Redick, Bellinelli, those guys running off screens constantly. You want a wing that can do that in their system because that's going to optimize Ben Simmons. That's going to just create a lot of passing angles for a guy like MB down at the post. So I think I would prioritize a guy like Miles Bridges, for example, who I think doesn't have that crazy ceiling outcome, but his median outcome in this class is really valuable in the modern game as a guy who can really switch, gives you some strength defensively, and then a guy who can really just be an awesome off-ball scorer type, and that fits right in with what the Sixers need. From someone on the semi-outside of the draft landscape, it seems like, um, just looking at it myself, that Kevin Knox has risen fast, especially in recent weeks. What good has he done for himself over the course of the last few months since the college season ended? Yeah, I think he's a guy that's really going to work out well in, in private workout settings. He's 6'9", you know, he has the length, he's going to shoot the ball well off movement. So that's going to be alluring in a one-on-o workout setting because he's, he looks the part there. He's ultra young, and I think people are chasing maybe some Jason Tatum upside. They're looking for that next wing who can be a playmaker. I view Knox as more of a four type. His tape, honestly, his freshman year wasn't that impressive. I think his athleticism is a little bit overrated. He's got a great frame, which should allow him to play the four. I think he can be a Tobias Harris type of player at the NBA, which is really valuable. I mean, that's a good player. That's a good outcome for him. But I do think that guys are kind of overreacting and maybe driving up Knox due to positional scarcity. And I would get that more if he was like a true 
playmaking wing type if he was a Tatum, if he was that caliber of player, but he just didn't show that at Kentucky. I think his athleticism is a little overrated there, but I do think that that's the reason is he's going to profile and project really well when you interview him and when you get him in a one-on-no private workout setting, he's going to look really good. To me, in respect to the 76ers, one of the more intriguing subplots of the draft is they're in such a totally different spot than they were even this time last year where if you go back to 2014, 15, 16, we're talking about guys like Embiid, Okafor, and Simmons. The Sixers were at a state as a franchise where they couldn't afford to miss on picks like that. And you could probably make that case last year too, um, and we'll see how Markel Fultz plays out. But um, – it seems like this year with playing time accounted for going into next season that a draft pick might have to do a little bit more or wait a little bit longer to get into the rotation. How important of a pick in the long-term trajectory of the team for the 76ers do you view number 10 or wherever they end up in the first round? I mean, Sixers are in a different position because they have their primary players in place, which most teams in the top 10 do not have. They have their franchise guys in Simmons and Embiid. We'll see what happens with Fultz. So it's not as important for them just because they have a tremendous fallback with two potential top 10 players in the NBA already, you know, on the roster. But I do think it is important still. I mean, you have to take advantage of drafts like this where a guy like, again, Miles Bridges, Mikhail Bridges, they could be there at number 10. That's not going to be the case in every draft. And I do think the Sixers, we saw in the playoffs, they really need wings. They especially need wings who can play both sides of the floor. Every team needs that. So, I mean, their rotation isn't fantastic as far as depth goes. Like, Timothy Luolo Cabarro hasn't really panned out. Justin Anderson, they didn't have a lot of bench depth. We saw that against Boston rear its head. And, you know, this is a really great opportunity for them to add to that. When in the draft at this stage for this year's class do you think it comes more um, becomes more about fit for teams? Do you see there being a cutoff point, whether it's in the first round, transition to the second round, where teams might just prioritize fit, who they might be able to use as role players rather than going for that best available option? Yeah, that's a great point. I think for me, the drop-off is a little bit after 10. I have Michael Porter Jr. at 10 on my board. I think he's kind of the last like pure upside play. Then I have a guy like Kevin Herter at 11. I think it gets a little bit more into team fit uh, there as far as optimizing. He's universally going to be valuable on basically every team as a wing who can shoot off motion, has some skill level. But that's when you start getting into like guys like Zaire Smith, DeAnthony Melton for me, Robert Williams. All those guys are pretty universally valuable for the most part. That's why I ranked them a little higher. But that's when you start getting into the less upside guys. And it's more about how you can optimize their skill sets. Were you always big on Zaire Smith? He's another guy like Knox who the Sixers had in for two workouts. He's really fascinating to me. He's the best functional athlete in the draft as far as applying his athleticism on both ends of the floor. But he's a very weird player. Like He played the four for Texas Tech most of the season as like a Sean Marion type of player. He was a screener, a lot of off-ball actions, and he played like a big for the most part. We just haven't seen a guy like him really come into the draft where he's not highly skilled. I mean, he has some dribble moves getting to a step back. He's got a great first step. Uh, he's not an anticipatory passer. So he's not a great creator for others. And then his shot isn't there yet at all. He had inconsistent mechanics last year. Would bring the ball over his head at times. Other times his shot looked good. And I just don't think he really – I don't know how high level his instincts are, or I should say how high level his decision-making is, especially offensively. His instincts in a lot of capacities are awesome, but they're more geared towards, like, big man instincts. Just a very weird player. I think a lot of people think he could be a Victor Oladipo type at his ceiling. I'm not sure if I quite see that. I don't really know what his ceiling is, honestly. I just have, I'm fascinated by him. He's going to be a really interesting test case. He's just taking the best athlete in the draft – who has instincts, especially on the defensive end, and seeing what you can make of him long-term. Who or what do you think, as far as this year's draft goes, are we not talking about enough? 
I think maybe Robert Williams is a guy. I think he's going to be an effective NBA player. And this is just the byproduct of it being so top heavy with bigs in this class. And he's kind of the guy that's getting pushed down. Like I still have him as a lottery pick. I think he can be a Clint Capella type player at the NBA level. It's just, you rarely see guys talk about him because he can't shoot the three. Um, he's not, he doesn't have those dynamic perimeter skills, not a good ball handler. He's a pretty good passer, especially on short rolls, but he's a guy who can really switch, I think. And he has the length to contest in space. And you know, his situation at Texas A&M wasn't great. I mean, he played in the two big systems. Him. I have no idea why he went back to school his sophomore year, back into the exact same situation, playing next to Tyler Davis. He's more of a, str- a spread pick and roll, pick and, pick and dive guy as far as a lob catch radius, but I do think he can be a, a really effective NBA player. Do you think there are second-round prospects in this year's draft that would be able to offer enough to a team to move the needle at some point? <laughs> There's a couple guys. De'Anthony Melton's a guy I really like. Uh, 6'4 guard out of USC, of course, didn't play a sophomore year due to the FBI investigation, but really high-level defensive instincts, off-the-charts defensive instincts as a team defender, can play, defend on the ball. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Marcus Smart. Not doesn't have that kind of girth, but he has a lot of those same qualities that just better and make a, a team better as far as winning basketball goes. He's been working with Drew Hanlon on his shooting mechanics. He actually has some feel offensively as far as he can run a pick and a roll. He's got good vision. So he's more of like a guy that, that it's going to be way more valuable to a team like the Sixers than most teams because they have Simmons, that big wing initiator that can you know dribble the ball, initiate your offense, and Melton can serve as kind of a secondary handler. So for the Sixers, I think he can be a lottery-level talent that's available potentially in the second round. Another guy is Josh Okoji. Uh, he's gotten a fair amount of buzz, especially after the combine. Six four and a half, seven foot wingspan, um, two hundred ten pound frame. Has the measurables, has the horizontal quickness as far as lateral mobility. Uh, you worry a little bit about his deliberate shot, his release. He's he's more of an upside play to me. He played outside his kind of realm at Georgia Tech just because they needed him to create, and he's more of a three and D kind of secondary handler type. And he just played outside of himself way too much. Bad decisions on both sides of the ball. Not a good off ball defender, but I think he can really switch, and he has the upside to be a two way wing starter in the NBA. And that's, I mean, if he's available in the second round, you can't do much better than that. Before letting you go, your most potentially crazy yet also likely development that we could see the night of the draft. <laughs> I don't know about likely, but I've been mentioning this on podcast. I said I really want to see it. If the Hawks take Luka Doncic at number three, and then like we talked about, Trey Young falls to the 12 range. The Hawks could move 19. They have some other assets move back up for Trey Young at that 12 or 13 spot with the Clippers. I think the opportunity to pair both of those guys offensively, that as the making is a potentially the best offense in the league. So I've been kind of looking at that intersection because it seems like with Aiden going one, Bagley two, you can see Luca going three. And if Trey's going to fall, I think that would be an outstanding move for the Hawks. Awesome stuff. Sounds as fresh as I'm sure he would have on the first day of doing any type of draft <laughs> podcast a couple months back. Coles Wicker, thanks so much, man. Hey, anytime. Yeah, that really would be something if Trey Young were to fall into the double-digit territory of the lottery phase of the first round. Certainly a handful of teams would have things to consider and contemplate at that point. As for all things draft-related, later on today, we invite you to join us for our second 76ers Draft Live video stream. It'll be coming your way from Sixers headquarters in Camden, New Jersey, later on on Thursday night. It'll be myself, it'll be Steve Donahue, the head coach of Penn, and Marissa Pilla teaming up to bring you some coverage. Tom McGinnis with a sit-down with Brett Brown, and we'll have a whole host of other things to bring to you as we cover the draft as it unfolds the 76ers with an opportunity for the first time this offseason to really deepen their talent pool heading into a major, major offseason. 
thanks so much to you for checking out the podcast and not just to Cole Zwicker, but all of our guests who joined us over the last three weeks, helping us get ready for draft night 2018. At some point, we expect to have a rewind edition of the podcast looking back on draft night. So be on the lookout for that in the days ahead on your feeds. We'll see what shakes out. Thanks for listening. See you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.